Good morning, Four Corners Church, and those who are visiting with us today. It is a blessing to be gathered as Christians, to sing praises, and to talk to God, to speak to Him in prayer, and to gather around His Word. And for that today, we are in Romans 7, so you can go ahead and go there in your Bibles as we gather around instruction from God's Word, Romans 7. Verses 5 to 6. I believe it's been right at a year now we've been in Romans. And I pray that the Lord is uh, really calibrating us to our Christian identity. Romans is really good for doing that. It sets up our understanding of what it means to be a Christian and what it looks like to live the Christian life. We tend to think of Romans very much as a kind of doctrinal treatise. And so it can become a little bit abstract, can become a little bit distant from life, but what we find as we go through it is that it's not some abstract articulation of Christianity, but rather it is a clear statement of who we are in Christ and all that that means in the Spirit, all that that means for the Christian who lives in the spirit of Christ. When I first came to Four Corners, the church was in the middle of a series on the Gospel of John. So I came into the Gospel of John, which was quite a blessing, and we were there at the beginning of chapter 15. So I just picked up where, uh, where the church had left off there at the beginning of chapter 15. And As we come to John 15, we read those very familiar words of Jesus. I I imagine that most here have read these words, maybe even memorized these words. But from those first two verses of John 15, we get this. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. This is that abide in me and I in you, for apart from me you can do nothing, as Jesus will go on to say. But it is this idea of bearing fruit that I want to focus you in on, bearing fruit for God through Christ. That is what it means to be a Christian, bearing fruit for God through Christ. That's what we do. That's who we are. And that's where we ended last week in Romans chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 4. We ended with this idea, which is very central to our Christian identity, this idea of bearing fruit for God through Christ. We've died to the law, Paul says, in order to be joined to another to the risen Christ. Not just to Christ, but to Christ who will never die again. To Christ as the risen one. And when we're joined to him, it is an eternal union that will never end. And now that we belong to him, we can now bear fruit for God into eternity. That's where we ended last week. First, 
Paul laid out the principle in verse 1 of chapter 7 that death removes one from obligation to the law. That was the big principle he started the chapter with. And then in verses 2 to 3, he illustrates that principle with marriage, the death of a spouse, and remarriage. And let me just say something on that as we sort of dipped our toe as a church in the question of divorce and remarriage last week. Uh, some of you may have left last week with some questions. Uh, and as I said last week, I, could, I can't explore that in detail there. Really, that's, that was not Paul's main point. His main objective was to get to remarriage after death in order to show that we can be now united to another now that we've died to the law. But let me just say this to you. Uh, this week, as I was reflecting on it and talking with some of you, uh, there is a really good description of the view that I articulated very briefly last week in the ESV Study Bible by Wayne Grudem. So at the very end of the ESV Study Bible, there are about three pages there where you can go and you can look at that view. For an alternative view, one that says that uh, Romans 7 is, suggests that uh, there can be no remarriage as long as the spouse is still alive. For that view, which is not my view, not the view articulated last week, you can go and look at John Piper's book, This Momentary Marriage. And that is a view that some have. Piper's probably um, the most well-known for that view. And so this is a good, healthy discussion. It's something to, uh, to consider and study through. Uh, John Piper put an article out in 1986 which is his statement on divorce and remarriage. And so you can kind of compare the two. Wayne Grudem at the end of the ESV Study Bible and Piper's article from 1986. But anyway, what we saw last week was that this principle is illustrated there by Paul in verses 2 to 3. And then Paul gets to his main point. His main point about dying to the law, He's, he gets to this in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. And so what Paul has been saying up to our passage for today, verses 5 to 6, is that there must be dying before there can be bearing. There must be dying to the law before there can be the bearing of fruit. But this is striking. This should really knock us on our back, as I said last week. What is striking to us is that this life of fruit bearing requires death to the law. Just let that settle for a moment. This life of bearing fruit for God requires death to the law of God. If that's not strange to you, it should be. It is very strange to read these sorts of things. Death is not something good, but the law is something good. And when we're told to die to something good, our minds should perk up and we should ask ourselves, what in the world is going on here? It makes sense to die to sin, that's bad. It doesn't make sense to us initially to die to something intrinsically good, the law. It sounds backwards. 
Live to God's holy law so that you can bear righteous fruit for God. Well, that makes perfect sense, right? That's what we would expect Paul to say. Be alive to the law. Live to God's holy law and you will bear righteous fruit for God. Live to God's holy law and you will be holy. Live to God's righteous law and you will be righteous. That's what we would expect Paul to say. And that's not what he says. Die to God's holy law so that you can bear righteous fruit for God. That sounds like something patently false. But that is exactly what the apostle says. That's why texts like these are just easily raced over, right? This is the sort of weighty, kind of deep, theological, heady sort of thing that we have trouble wrapping our minds around. So when we come to these sorts of things, which are so central to Christian identity, which are so central to how we ought to think about holiness and sanctification, we tend to just say, okay, flip the page. Just don't get it, and it doesn't make sense. It sounds patently false. And if it sounds that way to us, how much more would it have sounded that way to the Jews whose very identity was being people of the law? How much more would it have sounded like that to them? That was their very way of salvation as they understood it. Jesus says that to them in John 5. Verse 39, you search the scriptures, he's speaking to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Well, at the center of the scriptures for the, for the Hebrews was the law. Everything else was, was an exposition of the law, uh, an extension of the law. So Jesus is saying that his listeners thought that in the law itself, by means of the law, through the law, they could attain life. Romans 9 verse 31, there Paul says, Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. And so for the Jew in Paul's day, it was very much the understanding that the law is there and through reading it, meditating on it, and abiding by it, and keeping it, you attain righteousness, and eternal life. And what Paul says is, not so. You must die to this law. It's breathtaking. Paul knows how this sounds, especially to the Jewish ear. And that is why there is Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and following. That's the reason why Paul will spend many verses after our passage for today explaining what he means before he comes in Romans 8 to life in the Spirit. And so there's going to be much more material here that we will look at to help make sense of this notion of dying to the law. In verses 5 to 6, which is our text for today, Paul begins to answer the why question. That is what he is specifically concerned with in these verses. The why question. And that's why verse 5 begins with the word for. 
He's explaining why. Because dot, dot, dot. That's what he's doing in these verses. Why do we need to die to the law? Doesn't make sense to me, Paul. Why would I need to die to God's holy law in order to live a holy life? Why would I need to die to God's righteous law in order to bear fruits of righteousness for God? Why, why, why? Why is dying with respect to the law required if there is to be fruit bearing with respect to God? And the title for the sermon is just that, why we must die to the law as we come to these two verses. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. This concept of the law, the Mosaic law, very foreign to us. It's like when we talk about circumcision. We understand law, but we tend to detach it from the history of Israel. But to Paul's first audience, Romans 7 would have been groundbreaking. I tried to make this point last week, and we need to get our minds very much in the the thought process of those to whom Paul is writing. It's more distant for us, and for those of us who are Christians, we've been hearing this sort of thing for a long time. But to those who would have first heard Paul's gospel preached, these were radical, radical statements. So here we are. Romans 7, and I'll read all of verses 1 to 6, but our focus today will be on verses 5 to 6. This is God's holy, perfect word. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. That's the principle. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. That's the illustration. In verse 4, Paul's main point. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. And now for the reason, why must we die to the law? Verses five and six. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and ask him to illuminate his word. The Holy Spirit must do that if we are to grow from The Bible, the Bible is not a magical charm. You just sort of have it there with you and it will produce some sort of magical effect. It is the spirit of the living God who must take the word of God and illuminate it and use it to pierce the heart. And so we're needy right now, very needy. And so we're gonna go to God and ask for his help. Father, we need you every 
millisecond. You sustain us. You hold this world together by the power of your word. Father, you have made us and you sustain us. And those who are yours will be kept. You created, you saved, you sustain, you keep. And you will glorify. Father, we praise you that as Christians this morning, we belong to you. We give you thanks, God, that you have transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. We thank you, Father, that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Father, we thank you that he has passed through the heavens and has sat down at your right hand and that through him we have access in this grace in which we stand. And we hope now in the glory of God, the revealing of the glorious Christ to the glory of the Father and the glorification of all of Christ's sheep, his bride. Father, we worship you for who we are, for what you have done in us. We praise you, God, and yet we are mindful in considering who we are that we fall short, so far short in practice of who we are in truth. And so, Father, we come before you this morning asking for your mercy upon our sins. We beat our chests as the tax collector before the temple And we say, God, have mercy on us, sinners. Lord, we pray that you would show us our sin, that you would forgive us for it, Lord, that you would purge it from our lives. Those who, this morning, among us, Christians, who are living as though they are enslaved to sin. Father, would you remind them with these deep theological passages about our Christian identity, would you remind us all that we are not enslaved to sin anymore. But God has happened for us. And Father, we praise you for that, and we ask now that these truths would be made clear to your people through preaching. We pray that you would help us all to be receptive to your spirit as this preaching happens and and as the reading of your word happens, and Lord, the remainder of the service, that you would be glorified, your people would be edified, and that some among us today would turn from sin and turn to you, the living God. That some today, as John says at the end of his gospel, would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, they would have life in his name. Father, we pray that for people among us this morning, for all of us, Lord, that we would be in Christ, that no one would leave here this morning outside of Christ. We pray for our children, those gathered with us and those in the classrooms. We pray that they would see the reality of their sinfulness and that there is no law that they could keep that would make things better, but that they are under sin and under the law until they are under grace in Christ. Would you show us all these truths this morning, Father, by your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. So chapter seven, verses five to six, can be divided into old versus new. And we've seen this before in Paul, even just at the end of chapter six, the old versus the new. 
you were that, but now you are this. That's the basic structure of these two verses, verses five and six. But within this structure, Paul gives two sets of reasons for our need to die to the law. And these will be our two points this morning. Two sets of reasons for our need to die to the law. And here they are. In verse 5, it excites and kills. And then in verse 6, it binds and fails. It excites and kills. It binds and fails. And so hopefully this morning when we leave here, you will have an understanding, we'll all have a deeper understanding of why it is that this very strange thing must happen in which we must die to the law of God in order to bear fruit for God. Something that just does not jive will begin to make sense. That's the goal when we leave here this morning. And I think it will become clearer and clearer as we go through Romans 7. So if you still have questions, that of course is normal. Or Paul wouldn't have written the rest of Romans 7. So here we go with the first point. It excites and Kills. Look with me again at verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The ultimate culprit here is not actually the law itself. That we need to get that in place very clearly. Paul will go on to describe that in the following verses. The culprit here is not actually the law itself. The problem is sin. That's always the problem. It is sin. The problem is, to state it another way, the flesh. An idea that we have heard, if you've grown up in church uh, your whole life. I mean, I've heard this word, the flesh, the flesh, the flesh. And it gets used, I think, in ways that are less than helpful, especially when we talk about the fleshly nature, as though we as Christians live with these two equal natures within us, the fleshy nature and uh, the Christian nature. And they're constantly at war with each other, but they're both on equal footing. We're kind of in the neutral ground between them. That's false. We're in Christ. We're saints. We're empowered. We're no longer enslaved to the law. So that concept needs to be shattered. But this idea of the flesh is something that if we've been Christians for any time at all, we're used to hearing. Well, the problem is the flesh. And the flesh has been variously defined as man's unredeemed humanness or human nature as controlled and directed by sin. Sin at work in the fallen human being. That is essentially the idea, sin at work in the fallen human being, the flesh. And as Paul says here, sin works itself out by way of its own passions. So sin has passions. We understand sin in this kind of, uh, in, in this kind of, anthropological sense. You know, sin is like an individual here. We can understand it that way. It has its own passions, and they're called here sinful passions. Those lusts, desires, and feelings that, it, that are in accordance with our fallen nature. So in our fallen human state, we have passions in accordance with our fallen human state. And if you want a snapshot 
of those passions in operation? What do they look like in practice? That that stuff that's going on on the inside that shows up on the outside or gets carried along on the outside, what does that look like? And there really is no better place to go than Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21, which we saw earlier as Craig read. Here we get the outworking of our sinful passions in our members, which is what Paul says here. Sinful passions that are at work in our members. What does that look like in life, in our world, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our church? What does that look like? Well, let me read it slowly. Just let each one drop. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. By the way, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and in Southern Baptist church, we had a business meeting every, I've said this before, we had a business meeting every month. And man, those could get pretty nasty. And uh, I, I always thought, especially as I was going through seminary, I always thought, this, this needs to be read before every single business meeting. In fact, what, what I'm about to read, I think, needs to be read before any Christians get together to meet. Here it is. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. By the way, it's amazing to me how comprehensive this list is. And then Paul at the end says, and things like these. He's not even done. There's more, but he just has to move on because he'd be here all day. There's so many things like these that could be identified as we're talking about the works of the flesh. But these get at different categories. Internally, in terms of our own lustings, and externally, in terms of how that plays out with our neighbor. So as Paul describes it in Romans 7... And to use the words of Galatians 5.24, the problem is, back to what I was saying before, it's not the law itself. The problem is the flesh with these passions and desires that we just read. That's the problem. It's not the law. The law's not the problem. It's the flesh with its passions and desires working themselves out in our members. Now, how does the law relate to this? How does the law relate to, this is, this is very important, how does the law relate to the fleshly man? That is, the unredeemed sinner, the one who is in the flesh, who is governed by sinful passions. How does the law relate to such a person, an unsaved person, an unbeliever, to each of us before we became Christians? How does the law relate to such a person? Paul says here that those sinful passions, notice this, this is strange language to us. Those sinful passions are through the law or aroused by the law. Do you see that? 
It's strange. The law arouses our sinful passions. The sinful passions in us begin to make expression of themselves by means of the law. This sounds very strange. In other words, the holy law, when met by the sinful flesh, has the opposite result of what one might expect. It excites sin. It stimulates or arouses those fleshly passions. And it can't do otherwise when met by the flesh. When the flesh and the law meet, this is the child born. Let me read a quote here from John Calvin. He sort of helps us understand what's going on here. The law excited in us evil emotions. He uses that word because this word passions is normally used for suffering. So it has this sense of feelings, emotions, movements in the soul. The law excited in us evil emotions, which exerted their influence through all our faculties. What the law does in the absence of the inward teacher, the spirit, and we're going to get there in a little bit, is increasingly inflame our hearts so that they boil up with lusts. God's law does that. What? But that's what it says. That's what the law does to the flesh. Oh man, do you see now why the law cannot save us? It does the contrary. How can this be? Well, We will get more detail on that as we go through Romans 7. But for now, I want you to see that the problem here, so we're trying to understand how is it that God's holy law can arouse or excite sin in us. And the problem is our rebellion. That's the issue. So you can write that down. That's at the heart of of this relationship, our rebellion. To be a sinner, to be in the flesh, is to be a rebel against God. That's at the heart of what it means to be a sinner, to be a rebel. That's what's happening in Genesis 3. That's what was happening in each of our lives before we came to Christ. And that's what happens when we sow to the flesh in the Christian life. Rebellion. Listen carefully to how Paul describes this fleshly state as a state of rebellion in Ephesians 2, verses 2 to 3. So just hang with me here. I want you to see the relationship here. This relationship between the fleshly state and rebellion. So in verse 3 of Ephesians 2, Paul identifies this fleshly state by saying, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. This is the old life. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So, what do we have here? Flesh, desires, all under God's judgment, God's wrath. But then we need to look back at verse 2. So, Ephesians 2, verse 2. Listen to what Paul says. This is a state of following. The course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So you're wondering, what in the world is he getting at? This is what I'm saying. The flesh is a rebellious state by nature. It is one that follows self, 
the world and Satan in disobedience to God. That's what it means to be in the flesh, to live according to the flesh. It means to be in a state of disobedience towards God, but to be in a state of allegiance towards self, world, and devil. That's what it looks like and means to be in the flesh. In such a state, the law can only inflame sin, not heal it. The law comes along. Just imagine, that's the state, a state of rebellion, a state of loving self, loving the world, and loving the devil. And the law comes marching along. The law is not going to reform that. The rebellious heart is going to respond to that law with more rebellion. And so the law serves to excite or arouse sin. And that is why it has only one outcome. The law has only one outcome. The law, when met by the sinner, excites sin throughout life and results in death. Destruction. Separation from God. Not relationship with him. And that is why Jesus said in John 5, 39, listen to his words, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, which is what I read earlier, but then listen to what he says after that, and it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus was shattering the notion among the Jewish religious leaders that the law itself as written code would somehow produce for them life. Jesus is saying no, and in accord with Paul here, it actually produces enslavement and death because it excites your sin. What the scriptures were meant to do, Jesus says, is point to me. I am the one who gives righteousness through my life, death, and resurrection, not the law. Following law, living a moral life, Life will not save you. Now, there might be some here this morning who very much have that as kind of the working model. As you think, you would say, if, if, I, if I ask you, are you a Christian? You would say, yes, I, I'm a Christian. But what that means for you is that you, I've heard this many times in my life as I've talked to people, I, I'm trying. no. You don't try to be a Christian. You are a Christian or you are not a Christian. And as a Christian in the power of the Spirit unto God, we live a life of holiness by God's grace. We're not trying to tip over into Christian. It's not as though yesterday I wasn't so much a Christian, but today I am a Christian. Tomorrow I may not be so much of one, but then the next day or tomorrow night I will be. That's not how it works. The reason people think that way is because they are trying to live by a moral law by which they think they can attain eternal life. And it doesn't work because all it does is excite and arouse sin. In a state of rebellion, it only serves to stimulate sin in one's Heart. So you're here this morning and maybe that's you. Uh, you might be living a life externally that looks an awful lot like a Christian life. But in your heart, this is what's happening. And I think deep down inside you know that. 
So following law will not save you. Let me make a little application here to parenting. And I think of this only because I've heard Paul Tripp say this before. And I'll give you a quote here from Paul Tripp who has uh, written a, a number of things on parenting and uh, has some uh, other resources for parenting, really good material about parenting and grace. And by the way, that's, not, that, that's a difficult concept. I remember when I first heard, you know, parent with grace. I just, it, it's hard to wrap our minds around because what we, what we don't want to say is it's parenting with permissiveness. Uh, it's not as though you parent with a lot of just, okay, it's fine, okay, it's fine, okay, it's fine. That's not what it means to parent with grace. And so, uh, I won't say much more about that, but Ted Tripp has a good book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, really good for this. And of course, uh, Paul Tripp's material is really helpful as well. But here's what Paul Tripp says regarding parenting and the law. He says, your children need God's law. They need, and they need to hear Ephesians 6, 1 to 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. That was me. Let me go back to him. So your children need God's law. But you cannot ask the law, here's the key, you cannot ask the law to do what only grace can accomplish. Think about that. Are we doing that as parents? Are we asking the law to do in our kids' hearts what only grace can accomplish? And then he says, Romans 7, 7 tells us, so he's, he's reaching ahead. Romans 7, 7 tells us that we need the grace of wisdom that God's law alone can give But the rest of the chapter reveals how only the Spirit can produce change. The key to your children's hearts is not the law. It's the Spirit of God. It's the grace of God in the heart as they see their need for a Savior and are empowered in Christ to live unto God. That's our goal for our kids, not behavior modification, which is frequently what uh, Paul Tripp refers to in others, not behavior modification, but the grace of God in the heart of him or her. So I think this has an application to us for parenting. And this note on the spirit that we get there at the end of that Paul Tripp quote, this note on the spirit leads us now to our second point as we come to verse 6. So we've seen that the law excites and kills, and now we need to see that it binds and fails. So I hope you're beginning to see more and more now why it is that we need to die to it, as strange as that may sound. Look with me at verse 6. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So Paul has given us the old state, one in the flesh, one in rebellion against God, one governed by sinful passions, one in which these very sinful passions are excited by the law unto eternal destruction. But now, Paul gives us the but now. Now he gives us these words that we keep getting in Paul, and it's so lovely. But now. And that's, that tells us, let me just say, the Christian message is a good news. It is the good news. We must talk about all this bad news. Sin, bad. Death, bad. 
The law exciting and arousing sin, bad. The brokenness of our world, bad. Following the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air, bad. Wrath of God, judgment of God, bad. But all of that is meant to take us to the good news. The Christian gospel is hopeful. The message of Christianity, wherever it goes, says, look, God has done a great work. God has brought salvation. Think about the celebration of Christmas. We read those Christmas passages. They're so hopeful. They're so happy. They're so filled with celebration. And now for hundreds of years, the people in the Western world and throughout the world have, have cel- they celebrate Christmas in that way. It's like everyone around us, Christian or not, knows that it's uh, supposed to be a, a joyful time of year. They don't know why. It's because of the gospel. It's because God in Christ has brought redemption. God in Christ has saved. Yeshua means the Lord's salvation. Jesus is the great redeemer. He is the ark upon whom, in whom we will be able to safely ride out the destruction of God's judgment. So we have this language But now. And in the process, he tells us a little more about why we so need to die to the law. As he goes to this new state, this but now state, he's going to give us a little more information. Remember, because we're asking the question, why must we die to the law? It excites and kills. And now he's going to give us a little more information. It binds and it fails. So let's look at each of those. First, it binds us. As Paul says here, Being in a fleshly state, it holds us captive. You imagine the law coming along and putting someone in a prison cell. The law coming along and grabbing hold of someone and shackling them down so that they cannot move. It is a slave master who has a grip on us. And this is not just a grip of condemnation like we see in Galatians 3.3. So we do get this, this condemnation grip. Look at, well, read, uh, listen to, to Galatians 3.3 with me. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So we know that the law is over us in this sense that Under the law, we have a curse upon us. We have the curse of condemnation. When Christ died on the cross, he took the curse, the guilt, the condemnation upon himself. The curse was transferred from us to the one who was hanged on a tree. So yes, that is true. We are released from the captivity or enslavement of the law with respect to guilt and penalty against what is laid out in the law. We are freed from that curse. But the law doesn't just hold us under guilt. It's not just that. It holds us under the power of sin, as we've just seen. To be under law is to be under sin with full force given to its fleshly passions. Where the law reigns, the fleshly passions reign. So here's the picture from our last verse. In our fleshly state, we are bound to our passions. 
And even more, we are bound to these passions as inflamed, excited, and stimulated by God's law. Apart from Christ, we are in an awful state of bondage to our self-destructive, others-hating, God-defying desires. And listen, this is the way most people live. Let me say that again. This is the way most people live their lives. How sobering is that? As we think about our world, as we think about the problems of our world, of course, because this is the way in which most people in our world, the broad way, this is the way most people in our world function in life. This is what governs. We should be surprised that it is not as broken in some places as it is. And when it devolves into chaos and rioting and murder and genocide, we ought not to be surprised. This is the world we live in. You can give it culture. You can put it in a nice part of town. You can put it in a nice neighborhood. You can situate it in a well-balanced, disciplined family. You can give it all the perks of civilization, but the rebellious, sinful heart remains the same. It is enslaved to sin and the law and on its way to absolute destruction in hell, apart from the living God. So we see that it binds, but second, it fails us. As we close this morning, look at the latter part of verse 6. So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Here's the result of dying to the law and being remarried to Christ, dying to one and being joined to the other. Life in the risen Christ is life in the Spirit. Paul will get to this in Romans 8. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. Look, if you say that you are a Christian, that you know Jesus, love Jesus, serve Jesus, follow Jesus, then you must be one who has the Spirit. To know Christ is to have the Spirit. To be a Christian, to be living in Christ, is to live a life in the Spirit. And the reason I have labeled this, the law fails us, the reason I've chosen to use that language is because the law, the external written law, as Paul puts it here, the letter is placed here in contrast to the Spirit. Now, why is that? What's going on here? We've already seen that it excites and kills and binds. What's going on here at the end as we see this contrast between the letter and the Spirit? Well, one is new and the other is old, as Paul says. One is mere external letter. The other dwells within the human heart. One kills, the other gives life. Let me give you a few verses 
to help sort of bring these words together. 2 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul describes himself as a minister of a new covenant. You see new versus old. By the way, old means it comes to an end. Old means it is provisional. Old means it points to something greater, that it is not itself the consummation. Old means it fails, where the new succeeds. Paul describes himself as a minister of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Listen to what he says, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And then we need to go back to Romans 2, verses 28 to 29. You'll remember these verses when we went through that passage. For no one is a Jew. He's talking here about a a true Jew, one who worships God. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, external. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So we see it's internal. It's the Spirit. It's not the external letter that can do nothing in the heart. So how does the law fail us? It fails to transform the heart. It fails to give life. It fails to take us to the end. It cannot do what only the Spirit of God can do. The law fails where the Spirit succeeds. And even for the Old Testament saints, the law was provisional and domineering. It held the people under sin. Even the saints of the Old Testament, it held the people under sin in order to point them to Christ. That is precisely what Paul says in Galatians 3.22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So what is all this death to the law as we finish up this morning? What does all this death to the law and life in the Spirit mean for the Christian? As we leave here this morning, we say, okay, I get it. Makes a little more sense now. Hopefully a little more than a little more sense. But I get it. I'm dead to the law I'm alive in the newness of the Spirit. What does that mean for my Christian life this afternoon? What does that mean this coming week? Three things. First, it means focus and dependence in how you live the Christian life. Let me give you a quote here from John Stott. He says, the Christian life is serving the risen Christ in the power of the Spirit. Period. All of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is now for us fuel and fodder for that. Everything, whether we're preaching through Leviticus or you're reading through Leviticus, which is the law, Genesis, which is also part of the law, any portion of the Bible is now fuel for that. We are living for the risen Christ in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Spirit. In that sense, the Christian life is simple. You think about living under the law, how complex this and that and this and that and this relationship and that. Christian life simplifies. And that's the reason Jesus says in the New Testament, he talks about 
All the law and the prophets hang on this. Love of God and neighbor. And how do we do that? By the Spirit. We must depend on him. You must depend on him, dad, husband, when you are driving into your driveway at the end of a long day and you are tired and irritable. You must depend on him for grace to be the husband and father God has called you to be. And the same for mothers and the same for employees and bosses and everybody else. We need the Spirit moment by moment. We should be in a constant dialogue with the Spirit of God, depending on Him, praying for His help. Not just going at it on our own. Second, it means we are now able to live out God's holy law from the heart. Before, not from the heart. Now we can. Let me give you a quote here from John MacArthur. As believers, we are dead to the law as far as its demands and condemnation are concerned. But because we now live in the newness of the Spirit, we love and serve God's law. Now listen to that. We actually love and serve God's law now. That's the reason Paul says at the end of Romans 7, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. We die to the law in order that we might live to the law, as it were, in a sense. So he goes on to say, we love and serve God's law with a full and joyous heart. And we know that to obey his law is to do his will and that to do his will is to give him glory. So there's a sense in which we must die to the law only to return to it in the Christian life. We must die to that letter in order that we may now in the spirit pick up all these precious letters and be edified by them. And that's why Paul tells Timothy that the scriptures, he's talking there about the Old Testament, are meant to fully equip us for every good work. We don't get saved and throw the Old Testament out. That's ridiculous. We don't get saved to throw the Bible out and just say, I'm going to live spontaneously by my subjective sense of the Spirit. No. The Word of God still governs our lives in the Spirit who wrote it, who authored it, who gave it. It is God-breathed. And finally, it means that we now live as children before a father. You see, here's the thing. Those who are moral Christians, so-called, those who are cultural Christians, those who are just trying to sort of live up to a standard and are trying today to be a Christian, those who are doing that, know nothing of God as Abba. Know nothing of the Father know nothing of his love, know nothing of a heart of a child who wants to please his father, not to gain his acceptance, but in order that he might simply dwell in his father's love. Listen to this quote from Charles Hodge. Believers are no longer under the old covenant, which said, do this and live, but are introduced into a new and gracious state in which they are accepted. And not for what they do, but for what has been done for them. That's amazing. Instead of having the legal and slavish spirit, which arose from their condition under the law, they have the feelings of children. That's the Christian life right there. And those who are trying to get to heaven by keeping the Christian moral code or whatever, 
Know nothing of that peace. Know nothing of that fatherly love. They only know what Charles Hodge describes here as the slavish state. It's like Pilgrim's Progress when he comes to that mountain of commandments. Oh, it's crushing. I can never do it, but I'm going to keep trying. It will crush you and it will kill you. It cannot save you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the law, which is holy and righteous and good. We thank you for the law, which shows us your perfect will for human flourishing. We thank you for how the law shows us our great need for a Savior and how the law was there to be perfectly fulfilled in Christ. We thank you for his holy law-keeping, how he, born under the law, lived faithfully to obey and satisfy every jot and tittle of the law. We thank you, Father, that Christ loved God and neighbor perfectly. And through him, we are righteous in your sight as those who have perfectly kept the law in Christ. God, we thank you for his sacrificial death, that through his death on the cross, the curse, the guilt has been removed, and through having died to the law and sin and been united to Christ, which is imaged in our baptism, we have died from the power of sin and now live in the Spirit. God, you've taught us so much about the Christian life. You've taught us so much about what it means to be a Christian. We thank you for these precious sentences and paragraphs and words in Paul's letter to the Romans. We thank you for these verses we've been able to look at today. We ask that you would take them by your spirit and massage them into the nooks and crannies of our lives this week in our groups, in our church as a whole, and that we would walk in the spirit. We already live in the spirit as Christians, but that we would not sow to the flesh, but that we would live in this newness of life that you have given us. Father. Lord, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that all of this is based on the death of Christ for us. And so, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he did on the cross, what he suffered. And most of all, Lord, that he bore your wrath, that he took upon himself that judgment that was due to us. And as we celebrate this, Father, we pray that we would just rejoice in him that we would be grateful for him, that we would treasure him, that our love for him and desire to serve him would grow exponentially for each of us as we partake now of the Lord's Supper. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.